Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Paterno Legacy, Enduring Lessons from the Life and Death of My Father, Jay Paterno. Jay Paterno, author of Paterno Legacy. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, you know, this project really started as something differently. You know, when, when some of the things happened in November of 2011 and the story broke about Sandusky, um, uh, there were a lot of things happening very quickly in those next couple of days. And I knew I was in the middle of something. Uh, and I started to keep notes. And originally I was going to write a book basically about those six or seven days and then as time progressed, I realized the project had to take on a much bigger scope. I wanted it to be uh, about, really about my dad's whole life, but also reflect some of this in it. So I did it, I did it really because I felt there was a story that needed to be told. I felt that, uh, and as, as this, the coverage of this uh, entire story and my dad's life unfolded, I felt like I really wanted to get some things out there and say some things that uh, make sure I cleared the record on some things. When you were writing a part about being younger and, and growing up, what, how did you reconstruct that? Did you just sit and think a lot and write things down, or did you, did you keep diaries? Or well, no. Some of those some of those stories are, are, are things that you know when your father calls you into the den, into the den, uh, when he would call you into his den and then talk to you about certain things. Um, it was it was in a he didn't do that often, but that always stuck with me. Now, you know. Some, some of it reads like a transcript, obviously, to reconstruct the conversations from the best of my knowledge. So are they 100% accurate to what every word that was said? No, but there, there are impacts and lessons that stuck with me even, you know, 35 years later that I'll never forget. So, so it wasn't hard to remember those things because there are things you remember about, about him just like anybody does with their own father. And you, you called the book Paterno Legacy. Why that title? Well, we do, we debated a lot of different titles, and some of them got thrown out uh, early on. And uh, my agent and uh, the publishing company, we went around and around on some of them. But uh, I think what we wanted to do is un is understand there were lessons that he left that have stayed with me, stayed with my brothers and sisters, stayed with uh, guys he coached, and a lot of people he didn't coach, who have expressed in letters and emails and things to me about what he meant to them and what he what they learned from him. And I think the legacy of my dad's life will be that he was an educator. Um, yeah, he was a football coach, but it was the games he won that mattered the least. Um, it was the lessons. Football was a vehicle to reach people. Uh, and I think that's what I wanted to come through in this book, is that there are a lot of lessons that he left us behind. And that's really his legacy. And those are things that carry me and uh, carry a lot of his former players and people that he touched. When you were growing up, when did you start to realize that your dad was famous or not like other dads? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know that there was a moment like that because it's all I ever knew. Um, I, you know, when I was in kindergarten, a friend of mine uh, who I grew up with, uh, he thought, maybe second grade, but 
he thought that uh, he knew my dad had something to do with football. He knew my dad was famous. He thought my dad was Joe Namath. <laughs> Apparently, he never knew my last name, but um, but he didn't. Then figured out that my dad was not, in fact, Joe Namath. But uh, you know, I think it's one of those things that uh, you don't really realize. If people say, "What was it like having Joe Paterno as a father?" and I don't really have anything to compare it to because he's the only father I've ever known. Um, but I think you just kind of become aware over time when you see your dad on television or you see him in a newspaper or, um, you know, it, it's just something that kind of happened over time. When, when you were out in public with him, did he get stopped a lot by people who said, oh, hey, Joe? Yeah, I mean, we were, uh, you know, there was one time we were in Hershey Park and I was young and he just kept getting pulled by people. Uh, when I was 13 or 14, we went out to Disneyland in California and after the second ride, you know, people kept grabbing him and, and, you know, you'd think in California that you'd be able to kind of go under the radar, but he, the thing about him is he was very recognizable because he had a very different, you know, the glasses and rather large nose. And, you know, just had a, it was a recognizable face, so people would look at him and say, hey, aren't you? Um, and after two rides, he realized he was kind of holding us up, and he went back to the hotel, and we went through the rest of the day. So you missed out on some of those things, but, yeah, it, it did happen. You know, when you were little, you just thought, wow, my dad has a lot of friends everywhere. Everybody seemed to know him. And then you realize it was something else. How did he handle fame? Well, you know, one of the things I said in, in my uh, eulogy uh, at the memorial service, I said, you know, for him, the fame was accidental. He never sought it. Celebrity was accidental with him. He, he never tried to get out there and be something, you know, obviously in this day and age of social media and Twitter and people posting selfies. I mean... Even he wouldn't do that even if he was in his 40s. It's just not the way he was. Uh, so he handled it uh, very, uh, you know, he handled it very politely. I mean, people would come up and ask for autographs, and he usually tried to grant them if he could. Um, he was friendly. Uh, that's one of the things that's come through in, in the months and years since he's died is how many people have said, you know, I, I was a student, and I, your dad was walking across campus, and I stopped him, and... He said, hey, come on along and walk with me for a second, you know, and he'd have a conversation and he would tell them, what are you majoring, you know, ask about what they're majoring in, and he'd take an interest in them. Um, and I did, there were just so many stories like that, that uh, you know, this was a guy, he was just a regular guy, wanted to be a regular guy, but obviously you, know, you can only be that to an extent. But he, he handled it very, very, you know, very, in a very simple way. And, you know, he and my mom never, you know, they moved in the house when I was 10 months old, and they still live in that same house, same neighborhood, and that's never changed, never changed them. He, he was thought of as being kind of reluctant to give interviews. Uh, was he camera shy or? No, no, you know, I think it's one of those things that uh, he got to the point later on in his career was, you know, I'd rather have you talk about the guys I coach. I'd rather have, you know, I'll give you an example. Will Farrell came to, you know, obviously a very comedic guy and funny guy, but he came to Penn State in 2008 to do a comedy show. And he asked if Joe would come on. Uh, and he was dressed in, you know, Will Ferrell was going to be dressed as Ron Burgundy and do an interview with Joe. And he had done it at Michigan State with Tom Izzo and some other coaches at different schools where he'd done this campus tour. But I said, why don't you take two of our players? So Derek Williams and Sean Lee went on stage with them and did the interview, and they couldn't stop laughing and the whole nine yards. But, you know, that's kind of the way he was. You know, let, let, let the players have this experience. You know, I've, I've kind of done my time. And so I think it was more of he'd rather... The, the media attention related to the team, you know, he always said it's the kids' team, not my team. What was he like as a dad? Tough. I mean, he was tough and demanding. I mean, if you came back with a 95 on a test, he'd say, what happened to the other 5%? I mean, that's kind of the way he was, always pushing the bar. Um, but a guy that absolutely loved his kids more than 
life itself. And uh, everything he did, you know, you know, some of the lessons he taught, you know, his job took him away from us a lot. So he missed out on a lot of things. Um, and my mom was a great mother because you know, she really filled both roles a lot of times. But when I became a dad, one of the things he kept saying to me was, when you're home, be home. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, be there physically and mentally for your kids. Don't miss out on these things. I missed way too much of the stuff you did. But when he was around, I mean, he was just a loving father. He was very, very... Uh, you know, he just, he wanted the best in us, and he pushed us a lot. And that's, you know, that's the way he was. What was it like around the dinner table? Well, dinner was usually an argument. Um, he was a guy that loved to discuss things, argue, you know, any, whatever the topic of the day was. Uh, I can remember in the 80s when, we, when Reagan bombed Libya, and he came in that night, and we had discussion, and everybody in the family seemed to agree it was the right thing, and he, and he did, but he wanted to argue with us. So he took the other tack and said, hey, what about you? So we got in this big discussion at the end of the night. He said, well, you know, I don't, at the end of dinner, he said, I don't really feel that way, but I just want you to understand there's another side to every issue. And I want you to learn to argue both sides of an issue. So dinner was always, it was, it was like a classroom. I mean, it was, he and my mom both would come up with something and we'd argue as a family. And, uh, and I talk about some of that in the book is just, you know, there would be times when the dishes are cleared, somebody's vacuuming the floor after dinner, and two people would still be there engaged in an argument, and almost oblivious to the fact that dinner had been over for 20 minutes. Were there taboo subjects? Well, you know, one of the things, there's a chapter in the book called The Three Things We Never Talked About. One was, was you know, what happened at work, um, because obviously he felt like that work was, you know, involved young people's lives and things that weren't really our business. Um, we didn't talk about money. And we didn't talk about anything to do with sex. I mean, it's just those are three things, and that's probably because it's a conservative, old-school uh, way he was. Uh, and my mom, same way. So those are the only three things we really didn't get into, but everything else, I mean, politics, books, you name it, TV, we would discuss just about anything and argue about it. So uh, when he was at home, he didn't talk about football or the team at all? No. He, you know, he just felt like it wasn't our business. And, and the, other thing, the other thing that you don't, that people don't realize is, you know, in a high-profile football program in a college town, um, there are people around town that want information. There are people who bet on games. There are, you know, hey, who's hurt? Who's this? Who's that? What's going on in practice? Um, there's a, that information has value, and he understood that, and he just felt like the best way to keep that was not to go home and tell his wife things or tell his kids things. Uh, I'm sure he bounced some things off my, my mom at times, um, but as far as the football stuff, he kind of kept that, to himself. And then when I was on the staff, you know, when I became a coach, obviously uh, there was a temptation if I was over at the house for dinner to talk about stuff like that. Um, but we didn't because he didn't want to talk about it in front of the other family members or my kids. And, and that's just the way it was. Did, did he watch sports on TV? Yeah. I mean, he, he would watch. Uh, he wasn't a big, you know, not all the time. You know, he, he uh, when he grew up, he loved baseball. He was an usher at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn and loved the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then, the, then when they left, uh, you know, the, the, the movie uh, uh, Field of Dreams is a character, Terrence Mann, who grew up in Brooklyn and when the Dodgers left, never went to a game. My dad was Terrence Mann. He was a real-life Terrence Mann because he just he felt like baseball had abandoned him. Um, so he, you know, I said to him one time, you know, a friend of him said to him one time about the Brooklyn Dodgers, don't you root for the Dodgers in L.A.? And he said, no, I didn't. He said, I didn't leave the Dodgers. The Dodgers left me. Um, and he went to two or three games, I think, the rest of his life. But he would watch 
uh, sports. I'll never forget in 1986 when Jack Nicklaus made the great run in the Masters when he was in his mid-40s. Uh, he called me in and we watched it together and how much that meant to me. And still to this day, you know, when I think about that, it brings tears to my eyes because that was one of those moments. But um, I remember watching the 1980 Olympics hockey with him. And, uh, but, you know, he wasn't a guy that spent a lot of time watching sports. Could he watch a football game on TV and just relax and enjoy it? No, he was always trying to coach it. I mean, he would say, why don't they do this? You know? And I said, Dad, you, you know, you feel, the same. I'm sure you don't like the fact that fans probably do that when you're coaching. He I know, I just can't help it. Um, but, yeah, he would, watch, he would watch football and he would, you know, and, and, and always had a pad with him. When he watched a football game, he had a pad and pencil because if he saw something that was different or something that he liked, he, was, he would make notes. You know, he was a great innovator, but also he would see, hey, why are they doing this a certain way? Um, he'd come in on, uh, in the offseason and say, hey, last fall I was watching uh, this game and these guys were doing this this way or these guys were doing that way, and we would try and learn from it. And if we could improve upon it, we'd improve upon it. Your family take vacations together? Yeah, we, a lot of times we would go, uh, every summer we'd go down the shore in South Jersey, went to Avalon, um, and that was usually a week, week and a half, something like that. And, uh, uh, and you know, there were always bowl trips because at the end of the year the families would go on the bowl trips. So, yeah, we took a lot of vacations together, and uh, there's some great memories. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, all kinds of things. My dad would get in the water with us and, you know, ride the waves, all that kind of stuff, and those things stick with me. I can remember being young and going up to Cape Cod one year. We went up there and uh, flying a kite with them, and that was a big deal. And uh, so, you know, was, yeah, there were a lot of family vacations, just, just like anybody else. What was his year calendar like? Like, when, when was the downtime, or was there any downtime? Well, summer was really the downtime. I mean, it, what people don't realize is that, uh, you know, the minute the season's over, uh, you're on to recruiting. And then when recruiting's over, you're working with your team in the winter to try and get them ready for spring practice. And then spring practice comes. And when spring practice is over, you're on the road recruiting in May. And then when May ends, you're in June, and you have high school football camps. And when that ends, then you get a couple, you get about two and a half, three weeks where you got to recharge your batteries and get ready for the season. Because once you get into meetings and practice, you're really, you know, when we start practice in August, we would have maybe one day off between uh, the second or third of August through the end of Thanksgiving. You, you work every day of the week. You'd work every day of the week and you're working long hours. Um, so you really got into a grind. So you needed that downtime in July to really make sure that you didn't come in there uh, exhausted because it's a, it's a long grind and it's a tough, you know, it's a very, very competitive business. Um, so you got to be on your game and, and you've got to be up and running and there are times where you go in at six in the morning and you get home after midnight and the next day you're in at 6.30 and uh, it, it can wear on you. What takes so much time? Well, the thing about it is when you're coaching in college, it's a dual track. Not only are you getting ready for the game, you're also got to worry about the guys you're recruiting. So you may be done, you know, you, you get up, you get there in the morning and you get ready for practice. Um, you review the films from the days, previous day's practice, you work on the game plan. Um, and then, you know, because there's 11 guys on each side of the ball, you know, you've got to make sure everybody knows what they're doing. It's got to be precise. And then when you, you, then you meet with your players in the afternoon for an hour or so, and then you practice for two hours. And then after practice, uh, you're back looking at the film of what you just did. And then you're making adjustments. And then 
8 30 9 o'clock at night you're then going to call some kids you're recruiting because you've got to stay on top of that so there's always these dual tracks running and then you know back at 10 o'clock you look in the game plan and say hey this doesn't look good let's take this out you're adjusting you're meeting with the other guys and the staff and then you go home and the next day it kind of repeats itself all over again so there's so many different things and moving parts um but you know one of the things about my dad he was which was great he said look when you're done go home uh, don't sit here in the office because you think you, you know you think I want you here until a certain hour when you're done get home you say in the book that you were recruiting coordinator for mm -hmm. Penn State for a time can you explain how recruiting works <laughs> uh, I'm not sure anybody really knows but no it's it's a uh, it, and I don't know the situation as it is now at every school but I know with us we had uh, you know, there's nine coaches, assistant coaches, and everybody would have a geographic area. So at a school like Penn State, um, we would really focus on the state of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, D.C., Maryland, eastern Ohio, New York. You know, the, the surrounding area would be our primary area, and everybody would have a piece of that as a, a recruiting. And the recruiting coordinators really got to kind of make sure that, you know, you get films in on guys or video, um, and you evaluate them, and you decide who we're going to chase. And... Uh, you know, with football, there are years you sign 20, 25 guys, so the pool of guys you start with is in the hundreds. Uh, so you're really whittling down from hundreds and hundreds of young men that, you're, that are potential prospects for you between camp and between where they are and what position they play and how you evaluate them. So it's a really, really long, involved process. So it's, gotta, it's one of those things where with nine guys, uh, everybody's kind of kind of know what the other guy is doing and where they're going and you know I may be recruiting in Ohio and have a great defensive back well I've got to make sure that Tom Bradley who was coaching our defensive backs got a chance to look at that guy on film and evaluate him and maybe even go out to see him and talk to him the whole, the whole nine yards and it's all got to be coordinated um, so it's a difficult situation and it's a you know it's not like the NFL where it's a draft where Everybody takes their turn, and if they take the guy you wanted, you've got to find the next guy. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's much more fluid, and you don't have as much information as the NFL guys do, so you've got to really be sure you evaluate people correctly, and it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. What do you look for in a high school player? How do you sit in the stands and watch a high school player and be able to tell how they're going to be when they're two, three, four years older? Well, I think a lot of it's experience. If you've seen guys before, um, you got to get a feel for the competition they're playing against. Are they playing great people? If they are, you know, do they dominate the game? Do they, you know, you got you got to. It's one of those things you got to get a feel for it. But there are so many other intangibles because there are some guys you watch and they're great football players or they're great athletes. Um, but what's their motivation? I mean, you look at it and maybe they're not a great student. You know, one of the things in the book that's neat is there are a lot of notes of my dad's that were in his files, and. There's one on recruiting where it talks about the things you're looking for. And at the bottom it says, but remember, um, take the better student. You know, all things being equal, take the better student. Because ultimately, you know, unlike the NFL where they're just going in and playing football, we got to have guys that go to class and, you know, get an education because that's what the end result really is, the most important end result. So, I mean, there's a lot of intangibles that go into it. And, you know, what's their home situation? You know, if... Uh, my dad used to say, uh, I want to know, ideally, I've got a mom or a dad at home that's in, as interested in academics for their son as we are for their son, so that if their son comes and is not really getting it done, I can call mom and dad, and they're going to give him a kick in the rear end. They're not going to say, oh, my, you know, don't be so tough on my son. When you finally decided we want that kid, 
How do you do it? How do you close the deal? <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things that um, we talk about a lot in the book is, is my dad was honest with people. And that was our philosophy. And he said, look, I'd rather, he said, he used to say, you know, recruiting is a little bit like getting married. You can only tell so many lies because sooner or later you got to live together. <laughs> and you can't build this, this you know, there's a, you know, the, the mythology that everything's going to be wonderful. This is not. There's going to be tough situations. And we had a, there's a, you know, in the book I talk about a story where we had a running back that came in on a visit. And uh, he sits down and my dad said, now look, I'm not going to give you a big pitch about what we're all about. You know what we're all about. And the kid, very kind of, not arrogant, but a little bit cocky, said, well, come on, coach, sell me. Sell me on Penn State. And he says, okay, I'll sell you on Penn State. You're going to go to study hall four nights a week as a freshman. You're going to go to class. You're going to have to get up and go to breakfast. And he laid out reality. He said, and you may not play as a freshman. You may play, but that's going to be up to you, but you're going to have to compete. And he went through this very difficult list of things, which were really what he was going to have to deal with. And so after the meeting, he comes out and he said, well, I told him, this. He said, how do you think it went? I said, well, you were honest. He goes, well, if, he's, if, he's, if he belongs here, he's the right kind of kid and wants what we're offering, then he'll come here. And so that's kind of how he recruited. He didn't promise some pie in the sky. With, and I think that's kind of a lost art in recruiting now. I think a lot, of, a lot of people will tell them whatever they want to tell them to get them at school and then deal with that later. Um, but he wanted kids that wanted what we wanted for them. He wanted kids that wanted to go to school. So you really had to sell them on what we were really about. And he said, if you're honest with it, you'll get the right kind of kids. How often would your dad be the, the guy in the room talking to the recruit? Or how often was it done by the coaches? Well, it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, most of the time when we would go on the road, I mean, you're, a head coach can only go see a kid one time. So, so that's the so, that's yeah, NCAA, NCAA rule. So by and large, we, it was the assistant coaches. But when they came up on campus is when my dad would really sit down with them individually and really kind of get a feel for what they were about, get a feel for um, are they really interested in academics. I mean, he'd, he'd say to me sometimes, I'm not sure about that kid because I'm not sure how serious he's about school. Um, and we would lose those kids sometimes. And sometimes we'd get those kids uh, and they'd come and, and they weren't as serious about school and then you had a little bit of a job to do. Um, when you got him. But, uh, you know, he was, when, when you got him on campus, it was very rare we didn't get the guys we were really after. You say in the book that your dad changed the way recruiting was done. Mm -hmm. He, well, for many, many years, it was a situation where you didn't ask kids to commit prior to their senior year. You would offer them and then they would take their visits and then, you know, in December they would commit to the school they were going to or make their decision of their senior year. And what had happened is, in it would have been, I think, 93, maybe, one of those years, um, uh, where there were two or three kids we had been chasing for a long time, and Notre Dame came in with about two weeks left in recruiting and offered them and got them. And my dad said, that's not going to happen anymore. When we, when we make the uh, evaluation on a kid and we want them, we're going to offer them, and then we're going to tell them, look, we got to know yes or no, and, and you got to either get in or don't get in. But I'm not going to wait around till the end and have you wait around for another school come in and, and recruit you. When we've done all the evaluation, we've made a decision as to whether you're good enough to play at this level. So he said, I'm going to start to ask kids to, to commit. So kids started committing in their junior year. And nobody had done that. And that changed the entire playing field for recruiting. And now everybody goes and they recruit and get kids to commit in their junior year before they've even played it down their senior year. And later on in his career, when everybody kind of adjusted to that, he always held a couple scholarships in reserve because he knew there were kids that were going to develop in their senior year. Everybody else had jumped on kids. 
And he said, I'm going to hold a couple of scholarships. And there was a kid, Alan Robinson, who just graduated from Penn State and finished up his career and, uh, and was a big-time wide receiver. And he was a guy that we found in December of his senior year, which everybody had overlooked, and people had made their decisions. And he was out in Michigan. Michigan, Michigan State weren't even really on him. And our Ron Vandalin, who was recruiting him, made an evaluation, brought him back, and everybody got excited about him, and we got him. And, you know, the guys at Michigan, Michigan State were like, where did they find this guy? And we got him. He turned out to be a great player. You, you write in here about um, that you recruited Terrell Pryor, and some alums hinted that they could help him get to Penn State. There were few, if any, recruits who were under, we were under more pressure to get than Pryor, but Joe Paterno remained true to his beliefs, and Pryor signed with Ohio State. What kinds of things could be offered that would be only partially proper? Well, I mean, it was basically, there were some people that said, hey, you know, we can get to the kid, and I, you know, and, and, and in recruiting, what, what people don't realize is there's, there's, uh, there are people that break the rules, and alums will give kids money under the table or things like that to get them, entice them to go to their school. And I don't, nobody ever came out and said that directly, but they said, look, you know, we know some people that know him, we can get to him, kind of help you, and I said, you guys aren't allowed in this process at all. And, and Joe said, look, we've got to do that to get a kid that's not the right kind of kid. And, I, and, and so we didn't. And that's not to imply that Ohio State did. I don't know, you know, Terrell Pryor probably felt it was a better fit for him at that time because we had some quarterbacks that were pretty good ahead of him. Um, but the point of that was just there was a temptation there. There was a lot of pressure on us to get this kid by any means necessary. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't Joe would not compromise his values for that. Can you describe game day? What was what was your dad's routine on game day, and did he have kind of rituals that he would go through, and what time would he get up, and what, what was? The day I, I don't know, you know, because I wasn't in the house with him the last 17 years, so I don't know what time he got up. But he was up early every morning. Um, that's just the way he was. But you know, he would, uh, as he got older, it, was a little, it got a little different. But he would come over to the locker room, um, meet with the team, and then they would ride the bus we, when we were home. Um, there was a bus ride we would take from the locker room over to the stadium. And he would always ride in the front right seat. And the starting quarterback would always ride in the front left seat. And, that, and it was, that was on bus one. And that was kind of his symbolic way of saying, you know, this is our leader. This is the guy that's got to, I got to have a good relationship with. This is the guy that's got to get things done for us. Um, and then we get to the stadium. The first guy off the bus was the starting quarterback. But as far as his routines, he had a couple little little quirky things. You know, he obviously he, he rolled up his pants, which he started way back in the when he was first a head coach. My mom complained about him getting muddy cuffs on his pants and the cost of dry cleaning, and so he just started to cuff his pants so he wouldn't he wouldn't have to pay for dry cleaning. Um, and so that was one of his routines. And then he would at, on home games when he got to our locker room, there would always be a ham on rye sandwich. I think it was ham on rye, but. Um, Brad Caldwell, who was our equipment guy, always made, he had, made sure he had the same sandwich every week. And then on the road games, there was always two hot dogs. At his, and, he, and I think he usually ate one, and, you know, I'd get to the game, I'd be kind of hungry, and I'd eye it up, but I never dared to eat it. But he always, that was his routine every time, um, every game. And then, you know, he, he just loved game day, just loved it. What did he do in the, in the hour or two hours before the game. I mean, we talk to the players or talk to the coaches. Or well, you talk with us, and, a... and and he would go out. You know, in the hour before the game, you're in pregame warm, so guys mm -hmm. were on the field. And he'd come out uh, usually about 45 minutes before the game started, and he would watch warmups and he would look around, take some notes. If we were at home, there were usually recruits on the sideline. He'd talk to recruits, talk to their parents, 
um, briefly, but um, but keep an eye on everybody. If there was a guy that was a little bit hurt, he'd come over and say, hey, how's so-and-so doing? You think he can go? Um, or, you know, is he 100%? Do we got to keep an eye on him in the game? But he would look for little things. He'd come in and say, I think the wind, he'd talk about the wind conditions. If it rains, you know, he always was looking for those last-minute edges and those little things. And the thing that's unique about football as opposed to baseball and, and any indoor sport is the conditions are different every game, and you've got to be able to adjust to those conditions. And so he was always looking for those last-minute things, and he'd come in right before a game and say, don't forget this play, don't forget that play. You know, if you have trouble in the third quarter, you know, if, you, if you're having trouble throwing the ball, let's do this, or make sure we we're ready to adjust if they do this. And then was there a big scene where the whole team was there and he was standing up going back and forth giving a pep talk or? Yeah, he would call in the locker room, he'd call the whole team up. And, and, you know, he wasn't a guy that made big, long speeches, but he would remind them, look, you know, go out, have some fun. This is why we're here. Um, because there's a tendency sometimes to uh, make football in any sport life or death. And he wanted them to understand, look, you spend 352 days of the year getting ready for your 13 game days. It's here. Enjoy it. You know, I've been around coaches that dreaded game day because, the pre you know, they, they let the pressure. And he was the other way. I mean, he lived for game day. And he wanted his team to live for game day. And he would always try and take that. If he felt he had a team that was tense, he'd say, don't forget this is a game, guys. This is what you do when you were a young kid. This is what you dreamed about. Um, but he was never, you know, occasionally he'd come in with something, um, a speech or two. But, you know, he would bring the team up, get them excited, and just say, hey, let's go. Uh, you know, this is what you came for. This is why you're here. This is why you came to a place like Penn State to play in a stadium like this, in front of a crowd like this, and against a great team. And uh, that was usually what he got to try to get across to him. Is there a way to describe for viewers what it's like when the, the doors open, the team runs out, and there's 107,000 people all <laughs> screaming and yelling? What's, I, what's that I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 a, uh, it's really almost a hurricane of noise. Um, and it's hard to really describe it because, you know, some guys will tell you they hear it, some guys tell you they don't hear anything. I think everybody's different that way as to what they really focus in on, but it's just uh, even in the course of a game, you hear it, but you don't hear it. Um, even, you know, as the game's going on, you make a great play, yeah, you hear the crowd, but you're immediately focused on the next thing. Um, so I don't know if there's really any particular way to describe it, but, uh, you know, when you're at home, it's just a wall of noise, and some guys hear it, some guys don't. And your dad would run out with the team mm -hmm. well into his 80s. Yeah. Well, you know, he just wanted to show he could do it. I think he would show it off. I mean, I hope I, when I'm in my 80s, I hope I'm, you know, walking, let alone running, running out there. But uh, it was uh, – he, he, he enjoyed that moment. As the game was unfolding, what was his role? I mean, we always see him walk up and down right. the sidelines yelling things. What would he be yelling? Well, at? he would he, – one of the things he was great at is, is he could see people adjusting. Um, he would know, hey, this, this is the game plan we had coming in. And he would always try and anticipate. One, and during the week, he would try and anticipate. We'd say, here's what we're going to do game plan-wise. And he'd say, well, take this out or make this adjustment. Or I think we should do this. And he'd adjust the game plan. But then he'd also say, look, if we're having success with this, they're going to make this adjustment. Or if I were them, I would make this adjustment. How are you going to react to that? And he used to always kid us. We'd go up on the board, and, and someone would put stuff up there, and he'd say, well, I get the chalk last, so I win. So, you know, and he said that's the whole goal is make sure you find a way to get the chalk last. Now, obviously, the last 17, 18 years it was dry erase markers. But, you know, get the dry eraser or dry erase marker last doesn't have the same ring as get the chalk last. So we always said, yeah, you got to get the chalk last. And that's always what he tried to challenge us to do. And in the course of a game, 
he was always doing that. He'd say, okay, you guys, you've hit this pass a couple times. You've got to come off that, and you've got to run the ball. Or, hey, we're really hitting them on this weak side run. You've got to fake that and come out the other way and, and make an adjustment to keep them from ganging up on what we're having success with. And he was great at that. In fact, um, Lou Holtz, when, after Lou Holtz left Notre Dame, uh, he sent my dad a picture of the two of them and said to Joe, the greatest game day coach I've ever seen. Um, and that was what he was great at. He was great at, you make this move, I'm going to make that move. And it's, it is a, football is a chess match. I mean, you make, if you have success, if you're playing somebody really good, they're going to adjust and take that away. And he was always ready to say, hey, go to this. And he'd come down and say, tell those guys upstairs, I want to go to this, or I want them to go to that, or don't be afraid of this. What, who were the guys upstairs? I was one of the guys upstairs. Galen Hall was up there on the offensive side. Uh, and then Tom Bradley, who's defensive coordinator, was on the sidelines. So he would come down to Tom and say, hey, don't forget, you know, don't, don't be afraid to go after these guys. Don't be afraid to blitz them. They're, you know, they're, that quarterback's sitting back there all day. We've got to change it up. Or, hey, Jay, tell Jay and Galen that I want more of this or I want him to change this. So he was always very active that way. And what was he supposed to do compared to what his coaches were supposed to do? I mean, who had what roles and, and how did he not step on what the coaches were supposed to be doing. Well, he always had, he always knew the balance and he'd been around it so long. And uh, so, you know, he let us, you know, he would really do a lot of work during the week in terms of making sure we were heading to the game with the right ideas. And then on game day, he would let the game unfold and get a read for what the guys, he spent more time looking at what the guys across the way were doing as opposed to what we were doing. Um, but it's funny because, you know, Bill Kenny was one of the coaches that was down the sidelines and he'd come to me and say, your dad just told me that this was going on, you know, different down here. And I said, I don't think he's right. And he said, you know, sure enough. He goes, I looked and he said, your dad was right. He would see things from the sideline that, that a lot of coaches don't see. And I think that's obviously from years of experience. He, he knew what to look for and what the problems were. What was he like in the locker room at halftime when the game was going badly? Um, usually pretty upbeat. I mean, usually trying to encourage us and, hey, um, you know, the, the, the four, when we played North, Northwestern in 2010, it was a 400th win, and I'll never forget it because he came in at halftime. We were down 21 nothing with about a minute to go in the first half, and we scored. And he came in and he said, look, we just slow him down on defense. We're on our, you know, it was really positive, really positive. Um, and we had, there were a couple games like that that I talk about in the book where he came in at halftime and where you thought he'd be all over us. He was very encouraging and, hey, you guys aren't that far off, and we're making mistakes that are killing us. If we stop and eliminate those mistakes, and here's what we got to do, and here's the adjustments we got to make, and here's what I see. And uh, so he was generally very positive uh, at halftime. You ever get angry? Yeah, he got angry at us. Uh, in fact, this is in the book, too. Um, we were at Illinois in 2005, and I think we were up uh, 49 to 3 before the halftime. So, you know, everything's going right for us. And we put in our second quarterback to give him some experience. And we said, you know, what do you want to do with the offense? You want to run it, meaning if it's third down long, let the second team quarterback throw the ball, maybe have some success. He said, yeah, run it. Now he meant run the ball every play because I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. Because I'm, you know, I don't want to be a guy that runs a score up. We took it as, you know, if it's third and 10, let him throw the ball and try and make a first down. So the first third and 12, we throw the ball down to Illinois two-yard line, and he was, you know, we go at 56-3 at halftime. And he, that's as mad as I've ever seen him at halftime because he felt like we had disobeyed him and that we were trying to rub the other team's nose in it. And it was, you know, it wasn't even halftime yet. And he, he was irate. He just livid. 
And the players are laughing because they're loving the fact that we're getting, as coaches, he's giving us the business. And uh, so it was kind of funny. So after he's done uh, going, going after us, he goes over to the coach, a guy named Kermit Bugs, who was a coach on the sideline for us, who would relay the plays in that we call from upstairs. And he said, I don't care what they call. If it's a pass, you change it to a run. <laughs> we're not going to throw the ball. So we went the whole second half without throwing the ball. Now, in 2003 and 2004, the team had some pretty bad years. Was he, did he ever show discouragement during those? What was he like during those years? It was frustrating because in both those years, we lost a lot of games in the fourth quarter. We were close. You know, if you just make one play, you win the game. You know, you, you make one play, you win the game. There were a couple games like that where it was just really frustrating. And we knew that it wasn't a matter of the other teams were better than we were. We just had lost kind of the the ability to close it out. Uh, so I don't, he didn't get frustrated. He was always upbeat with the players. And one of the things I think, think that really comes, came through was um, even when things weren't going well, he did not change what he valued in his program. He did not change his approach with the players. Um, he said, you know, if, if you panic in these situations, the players will smell it. And, and with uh, two weeks to go in the, uh, in the 2004 season, he had a team meeting. And he said to them, look, uh, this team can't win a national championship this year. He said, we know that. And we're not going to go to a bowl game. He said, but, you know, we're going to remain focused. We're going to go out and win the next two games. And we're going to set the bar for next year, and we're going to go out and win them all. And, you know, everybody would have thought he was nuts. At the time, we had lost five, six games in a row, and, you know, we were two and seven. When we go out and we beat Indiana, we beat Michigan State, and we come in that locker room, and there was a whole different vibe in that offseason. And then we went out and we were one second away from winning every game the next year. He was, at, he was right. He said, once we figure out how to win, we have the ability that we may not lose. And, you know, we won the next 15, 16 games. We went 15-1. and one. Uh, So he was dead on. But he, he stayed consistent. And he didn't panic. And the players continued to buy into what we were about because he didn't show, it, show any panic. When when things were going badly, there were a, a lot of sports writers and a lot of people were talking, and there was some pressure on him to retire. Maybe the game had passed him by. How did he react to that? What was he like then? Well, he was a guy who really didn't pay a lot of attention to what people wrote about him. I mean, he didn't I, read sports writers? Not a lot. I mean, you know, occasionally he would say, hey, you know, this guy is not being fair, but not very rarely. I mean, because he just said, look, I, he used to tell us, you know, publicity, you know, he'd say publicity is like poison, only kill you if you swallow it. And that was both ways. It was, you know, if you, if you read too much negative stuff and you internalize it, you start to believe it. Or you start to overcompensate and try and react to it and do what you think people think you should do rather than, and you lose your focus. On the flip side, if you're doing well and you continue to read about how great you are, uh, you have a tendency, it's human nature, to believe you've got it made, believe you've got the secret formula, but, and, and ease up. So he took that both ways. So he didn't want to spend a lot of time either way, positively or negatively, reading about what was written about him. But, you know, he knew. I mean, there, there was, you know, there, there's a story in a book where uh, he and I were leaving the game together and there was an old guy that sat on this folding chair over by the, across the street from the stadium and he yelled, you know, give it up, Joe, you're too old, that kind of stuff. And a year later, we beat Ohio State uh, in a night game and we're 6-0 at that time, I believe. And it was just an unbelievable event. And I said, I wonder where that guy in the chair was. And he said, my dad said, yeah, I wonder where he is, which told me that he had heard it. 
where all these times, uh, for a year, I didn't think he'd ever heard or pay attention, but he did hear it, but it never, it never got to him. He was very tough that way. Now, he was in his mid-70s when that happened, and, and then the, the following year, he, they were 11 and 1, mm -hmm. and there was some thought at the time that he would, that he would say, okay, yeah, I showed right. you, and I'm going to retire now. But he stuck around for another six years? Six years or seven years, yeah. yeah. Why did he stay around so long? He loved it. I mean, he really loved it. Um, and he really felt like he was reaching kids and helping kids and educating them. Um, and, you know, it was one of those things that, uh, you know, that stretch of time, uh, we had the sixth best record in the country over that period of time. So it wasn't a situation we weren't getting it done. We were the only school in the country that won 77% of our games those last seven years and graduated over 80% of our players. So we were still doing things at a very high level on and off the field. Um, we were a model program. And, you know, he felt good about that. And he felt good about here's a place where a young man who happens to be a great football player who's also interested in getting a very good education and getting a meaningful education can still come and compete at the highest level. And he believed that very seriously. And he felt like he could continue to give. Um, but, you know, by the 11, 2011 season, he decided that was going to be the last year. Was he competitive with Bobby Bowden for who had the most wins? He didn't care. I mean, it just it was one of those things. Really? Really. Didn't, he didn't, he didn't get into all that stuff. He, you know, he said, uh, who's leading anyway? You know, somebody said, well, you know, you're only three ahead or you're two. You know. he goes, Who cares? He said, when I'm, said, when I'm, when I'm gone, is anybody going to really care? What's it going to do for me? <laughs> he, said, you know, he said to me one time, I don't think St. Peter really cares how many games I won. <laughs> I said, well, you're assuming you're going to get the St. Peter. Um, <laughs> but he didn't like that joke. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that uh, you know, it, it, it didn't mean that much. You know, he... he he was always looking at the next game. You know, even every time it was the next game, the next game, the next game. His faith played a big part in his life? Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he, he grew up, went to a Jesuit high school, um, Brooklyn Prep. And, um, you know, he was a guy that really loved the Latin mass. He had three or four years of Latin. And when they took the Latin out of the mass, it really, he, he really kind of, as a protest, said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not real happy about this. So he didn't. He wasn't the guy that went every week, but really believed. You know, it played a big part in his life, um, uh, and, and certainly my mom's life too, as well. So yeah, and then they really instilled that into all of us. When you were growing up, was it just sort of understood that you would go to Penn State and that you'd play football? No, he wanted us all to leave. He tried to get us all to leave. You know, he. You know, I talked talked to him about maybe going to Brown where he had gone, and I looked at a couple other schools, but you know, I just. Penn State College and Penn State, tough place to leave. I mean, it's, it's you know, you've kind of, found the found, kind of found the fountain of youth. Forty-something thousand people in that town are always going to be age 18 to 22. And when they get to a certain age, we kick them out or they graduate, and then we bring in younger people. So there's always that vibe and there's always that, uh, you know, that, that, that energy around it. So, yeah, you know, I thought about leaving, didn't want to leave. But then, I, you know, when I left um, to coach for five years, it was probably the best thing that happened because when I came back, I really understood how unique and special Penn State was because sometimes when you're in it, yeah, it's great and it's wonderful, but you don't have anything to compare it to. And so when I left and came back, then I really understood. You know, it was one of my first days um, driving into work, and I came up over a hill, and the sun was coming up right over Mount Nittany, and I went, whoa. You know, I never noticed that before. All my time in life, I never noticed the sun coming up over Mount Nittany. And it just hit me. And, uh, you know, it was like, okay, I'm home. Why did you come back? I mean, was there some concern that, that, you know, you'll always be in your dad's shadow if you're there? 
Well, I love Penn State, and I love what we stood for, and and I love everything about the place. Um, so, you know, I had an offer to go somewhere else for more money, but I wanted to come back to Penn State. And and at that time, you know, I thought, you know, in 1995, my dad was nearing 70, so I figured, you know, he's probably got four or five more years, and I don't want to miss the last four or five years of his career. Little I know it was going to be 17 years. Uh, and then later on, it became, you know, why don't I leave? And I just, I did not want to be somewhere else the last time he walked off the field. I just didn't want to be. And, and I always felt like as long as I, you know, I, I wanted to be there to help him, you know, through the end of his career. I really did. And, I, and you know, would my career have gone differently had I left? Yeah. And maybe better. Who knows? But, but you know what? It's one of those things that uh, I have something, I had something with my dad that I know nothing could ever replace. And there's, you can't put a value on it. Did it get to be an issue with recruiting when your dad got up in years where, where freshmen would say, well, yeah, he's the coach now, but who's going to be the coach when I'm a senior? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he would talk to them about it. And, and generally what would happen is when they would spend time with him, they'd say, gee, this guy might be here another 10 years. Um, you know, even up until the, the last year of him coaching, it was, uh, you know, he didn't find out he had cancer literally till November of 2011 after he'd gotten fired was when we found out. We had no idea. Um, the summer before he, the summer before 2011, he was walking seven, eight miles a day. A friend of mine saw my dad walking on the far end of a golf, far edge of a golf course that was at least three or four miles from his house and it was 95 degrees and he said, hey, was your dad out there walking? I said, yeah. He goes, you know, it's 95 degrees. I said, yeah, good luck. You tell him that. I mean, he's, he was out there really pushing himself and, uh, so, you know, he, he had that energy, and it was infectious. And, and what he also told kids was, look, you need to pick the school where you want to get an education, no matter whether it's Penn State or wherever it is. Don't get too tied up in uh, who your coach is necessarily. You've got to pick the school because football, you could get hurt the second day you're on the team and never play football again, or you better be somewhere where you're going to be happy and where you're going to get the education that you want. So we got a lot of kids that came because they wanted to play for them, but also because they wanted what Penn State was all about. When did you first hear about the Jerry Sandusky situation? It was, I want to say, late December of 2010 or maybe January. The exact dates are, you know, if you told me which one they were, you know, I, I couldn't tell you. But um, my brother Scott, who was uh, an attorney, who was you know, obviously working with my dad on this, you know, told me that, you know, dad's going to go to a grand jury and they're going to ask him about this, that, and the other thing. And it was really kind of a shock because it just kind of came, you know, it wasn't something you ever thought of. Um, Did you overlap Jerry Sandusky? Were you coaching? Yeah, I coached him from 95 until he finished in 99. Um, and, you know, he was a guy that, uh, you know, I had great respect for him as a coach. And even though he and I didn't see eye to eye on, a lot of, on everything professionally, which is true with everybody. Um, but I looked, here's, here's a guy who started a statewide charity to help kids. And, you know, I would go to second mile events and things like that because, you know, it did a lot of good. And, you know, I, and, and, I, you know, and one of the things I think that's gotten lost in all this is there were a lot of children that were legitimately helped through their involvement in the second mile programs. And a lot of good people volunteered and made impacts on people's lives. And so, unfortunately, some of that's gotten lost uh, in all this. Um, but, you know, it's, it was one of those things, that was, it, was, it was shocking. Did you talk to your dad about it as it was all unfolding? He and I, first time we really talked about it was when this really happened in 2011. Um, because, you know, one of the things he said to us is, you know, what people don't understand as it relates to the laws, as it relates to these kind of crimes, is you can't talk about it. Um, when, you, when you get a report 
you know, and, and, and people forget, you know, my dad was told a report. He didn't witness anything. You know, somebody reported something to him and he and the law basically said, you've got to report it to your superiors. And that's as far as it goes. And, you know, in Louis Free's report, one of the things he said was that Joe should have come in and warned the coaches about it and said, you know, alerted us, which is against the law. I mean, because of the fact that there's, if there's an investigation going on, if he comes and tells 10 or 12 coaches in a room, uh, you don't know that somebody isn't going to call somebody and it's going to get back to Jerry. And then you have a, a potential suspect who then is alerted that there's an investigation going on. And all of a sudden, evidence disappears. So, you know, there's been a lot of unfair criticism of my dad about the way he handled it, but he handled it exactly the way he was supposed to under the law now uh, and under university policy. What was it like for you and, and your family personally as this was all happening? Well, it was difficult because because uh, you saw things being reported that weren't true, and you saw accusations being leveled that weren't true. There were guys on national television saying that every assistant coach had to know, and they just kept their mouth shut, which wasn't true. It absolutely wasn't true. But those things kind of, uh, if they're repeated often enough, they take on the aura of truth. And, and so there was this perception all over the country that this was something we were all aware of and did nothing about, and that Joe was certainly aware of it. It was absolutely not true. And, you know, one of the things I think that uh, has come out and gotten lost was, you know, the prosecutors in this case have said repeatedly that, that my dad was honest, cooperative, forthcoming, and in no way involved in a cover-up or an attempt to conceal this. And Louis Free went well beyond that in his report without all the evidence. And, uh, and I think that's, it's important to note that the prosecutors who actually looked into everything and interviewed everybody came to a very different conclusion than Louis Free did. You reprint a, a few uh, pieces of hate mail that you got mm. at the time. What was, that, what was that like? It was tough. I mean, you know, when... when did you get hate mail when, before this happened? I mean, people well, yeah, but just it, disagreed with you. Yeah, but it was, it was you guys, you know, you don't know what you're doing or you're not good, you know, things like that, which you, you know, you know you can do the job and what people say about it doesn't bother you. But some of the things that, that came through on Twitter and on email and anonymous letters and things like that, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in that, in that part of the book was to uh, reprint some very, very beautiful and positive things. And then right below it, reprints of things that people would be aghast at. Yeah, why do you want to print the real hate? Because letters? what I want to, and the thing is, I don't complain about it. What I wanted people to see is how beautiful we can be for each other in times of difficulty and how difficult we can be and uncivil we can be. And I think one of the lessons of this is, is, the, is that social media allows you to say some things that are just brutal. Um, and, but on the other end, I hope people understand that when they do that and they hit tweet or they hit send or submit or whatever it may be, there's a human being on the other end, other end of that. But it also allowed me to show how explosive this issue is. And in the next chapter, I talk about, um, how there were death threats made on me and my, on me and my, my family, my wife and kids. Um, when I went on TV in February of 2013 to kind of support a report that we had put out, um, and that having now understood the issue better, because I was educated on this issue, I understood why there was that hate out there. And so I don't really pass judgment on it. But I think it's one of those things, people that have read that part of it have come back to me and say, wow, that, I mean, people really said that. Yeah, that people really do that. But, you know, it's the immediate emotions of social media. It allows you to be angry and send it right away without the, you know, when you write a letter to the editor 25 years ago, you'd have to type it 
by the time you finished typing it, you probably weren't as mad. So you didn't send the most vile things you could think of. Now, you get out your smartphone and you send that thing. And we've come to this culture of uh, escalating outrage is probably the best way to describe it. Well, this guy's mad. Well, I'm going to show I'm even madder about this. And, I'm gonna, you know, and you saw it with Donald Sterling with the L.A. Clippers. And you've seen it with a lot of different issues where people go on social media and they put things because they just want to show everybody how angry they are, too. What was the conversation like with your dad right after he got fired? Well, you know, it was tough because, you know, there was doubt in my mind as to what I was supposed to do at that point. And he made sure in no uncertain terms that I had an obligation to the players I coached in the university and that I needed to continue on and, and coach. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was never to feel bad about me or things like that. He's, you know, at one point he said I'd planned to retire anyway, so in the end of the, in the grand scheme of things, I'm going to lose a couple of football games that I don't get to coach. But it was more than that, obviously. But, uh, you know, he just, you know, he felt bad because it was going to be a distraction to the players and to the university and all those kind of things. And he felt like had he stayed on, he would have been able to help them get through the, through the whole issue. Was he angry at any of the people who fired him? No, I mean, you know, he was never a guy that got mad. You know, he understood that, uh, I think he understood that uh, they were in a tough situation um, and a, a lot of, in, a, in a media pressure cooker. I don't think he was angry. I think he was disappointed that there was not a discussion, that they never came to him and said, let's talk about how we, how we handle this. Because he's a guy who had 60-something years experience in the public eye, uh, felt like he could get out, you know, felt like on Tuesday of that week, he had a press conference scheduled and he was ready to go in and talk about it and answer some questions and, and clear the air. And probably this story cha probably changes the trajectory of the media if he was able to do that. We'll never know, obviously. Um, but so I think he was disappointed that there wasn't any kind of consultation or let's get, and, 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 as he said, he goes, if we got together and talked about it, it may have come to the same conclusion. It may have been I couldn't coach anymore. It may not have been. Who knows? But uh, the fact that there was never any outreach from the university administration to sit down and say, how do we get out of this, I think it was disappointing him more than, more than it made him angry because he was never a guy that really got angry at, at things like that. You had three or four games left in the season mm -hmm. after he was fired. What were those games like? What was the first game like without your dad coaching? It was surreal. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I, I can remember walking the stadium and feeling like, Part of me felt like, uh, you know, I, I, I titled the chapter Survivor's Guilt. I mean, which is, you know, why am I still here and he's not? Um, you know, here's a guy who has done so many great things in his life and he's not here, but I am. And I certainly don't feel like I'm more deserving to be here than he is. Um, it was tough. I mean, it was very, very difficult. And then, so it was an adjustment. And it was, you know, you didn't have that voice saying, look out for this or, hey, why don't we do this or... Uh, make sure you don't let them catch us off guard with this. So you, you, you kind of felt like he should still be there. There was still this feeling that he, you know, it was still a feeling of almost temporary. Well, this is just, you know, he'll be back next week. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was difficult that way. And then how much longer was it before he passed away? He, uh, he died January 22nd. So it was, you know, after he was fired, it was about two months, a little over two months. Um, but, you know, we had that first game and then, uh, that following Monday, my mom, they had gone to get some tests over the weekend and found out he had a mass in his lung. Uh, so that then all of a sudden, that be we tried to keep that as quiet as we could. We didn't want that to become a story. And by that Friday, somebody had seen him going in out of the hospital. So there were starting to be reports. So we had to, unfortunately, announce he had cancer so we could end all the speculation of what it was. 
Um, and that, you know, that was a Friday before we played Ohio State uh, on the road. And uh, so, you know, we had four games, you know, from the time he was fired. And, um, you know, it was a difficult couple months. Uh, but, you know, up until eight, nine days before he died, it, really even up until four days before he died, it looked like everything was trending very positively. And then it just took a bad turn. And then you were fired by Penn State at the end of the season? Well, at the end of the year, Bill O'Brien was hired. And then uh, he decided to fill out a staff with other people. So, uh, so basically kind of went our, our separate ways. And, uh, that's, and, you know, and that's not unusual. How long did it take you to write the book? Oh, geez, I can't remember when exactly I started, but it took a while. I mean, you know, it, was, it, it took on a lot of different aspects and a lot of different forms um, before we really hammered it out. Uh, and the guy who's my agent is a guy named Al Zuckerman out of New York, who is, he's Michael Lewis's agent, did Moneyball and Blindside, and he's, he's had some unbelievable authors over the years. And thankfully, he kind of got me focused. He said, this is the proposal I think you need to put together. This is what I think you need to do. He and, his, and, and Mickey Novak at Writer's House were really kind of guided me. And we're very patient because, you know, obviously as a first-time author, you're going into this saying, well, I'll just show up and write a book. And they said, well, no, you got to do this proposal and here's that. You know, so they really kind of guided me through it. Um, but it, it, so it took, you know, I finished it really last summer. Um, so it was about a year and a half in the actual writing. Um, so, and then obviously I had to do the editing and all that kind of stuff. And, and at one point we thought it would come out Father's Day. Um, but the publisher probably accurately felt like it was more of a fall book, an autumn book, than it would be a Father's Day. Um, so, you know, it took some time, but, you know, it's uh, one of those things to write columns, which I do, 800-word columns. I mean, that now seems like, wow, only 800 words? Wow, this is easy. Uh, when you start to put together a book that's 125, 130,000 words, it's a whole different ballgame. So when all is said and done, what's the Paterno legacy? It's going to be, I think, that he was an educator, and it's going to be the lessons that he left a lot of people, um, and so many of them. And, you know, people say, what particular lesson? Well, there were so many. It was... You either get better or you get worse. You never stay the same. You know, the will to win is important, but the will to prepare is vital. You know, the idea of focusing and all these different things that he would te teach you and a lot of different individual lessons. But the overall arch the overarching goal of all this, of his lessons were, you know, every day you wake up, you know, you got to be thinking about the next challenge. And you can never just stay static. You've got to continue to go forward and push forward and do everything you can to achieve at a very high level. We've been speaking with Jay Paterno. He's the author of this book, Paterno Legacy, Enduring Lessons from the Life and Death of My Father. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be here. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.